Welcome to the One Million Euro Podcast. I'm Aris. I talk to people from the business world about their mission and money and their rise to success. I am welcoming our guests to the studio. Welcome. Introduce yourself. Hi, Iris. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Raisa Ghazi, and I am an entrepreneur in the Netherlands. It's good having you here. Can you tell me a little bit what female leadership to mean to you? Yeah, yeah, definitely I can. So women's leadership, that's something that's very close to my heart. Um, and the reason why is because I'm actually a speaker on inclusion uh, in the workplace. And so one of the things I've learned really fast when I started doing this is that uh, one of the groups that are marginalized in the work workplace are women. And so women's leadership to me is um, not just regular le le leadership. Uh, it's, it's, it's very different because women, they encounter a lot of challenges in the workplace that um, men usually do not. And so for a woman to rise to the top, it means that she has had to overcome uh, so many barriers that are very specific to uh, her being a woman. Um, and I think that that's why women who are leaders are very transformational and remarkable people uh, because of the journey they've been on. So women's leadership to me is just very inspiring and, and it, it empowers people it, it, uh, it really shows strength so how would you define it how do you how would you define it the women leadership how would I define it I would define it as a um, the journey of women in the workplace um, where they have to uh, overcome a lot of barriers. Um, and, and because they've become these barriers, they become more inspirational and more remarkable than a regular leader. So that's what women's leadership is to me. It's, it's about overcoming barriers because that's just what it is in this world. There's so many gender biases and stereotypes and gender rules which hold women back that for a woman to become a leader, um, she's been through a lot. So that's why, to me, women's leadership is, is, is very, um, it's transformational. It's very remarkable. It's, it's inspiring. And it, it's a lot of strength. So can you give me an example? An example of a real-life person or an example of what could happen in the workplace for women, to women leaders? Uh, a real-life example. Okay, so I have this nonprofit, it's called the High Tech Tea, and the High Tech Tea has uh, the uh, mission to empower women in technology. And so for this organization, I interview a lot of women and examples of women who have shown great strength or leadership in their um, jobs um, are also discussed in these interviews. And, and one interview in particular, I think it was one of the first ones, uh, I was talking to this woman who um, established this 
software assessment tool for recruitment. And she was the CEO of the company. And she basically has like an award winning tool, which is being used by the government here. It's it's like legit. And she told me that whenever, well, not whenever, it's like it, it happened a few times that she would enter a meeting uh, with one of her um, clients, I guess. And then they would automatically assume that she was the secretary and order coffee with her. Um, and so what really was um, very typical to me is the way she dealt with that. She told me that instead of getting angry or being super offended, she would be like, okay, let me get that coffee for you. And she would get the coffee and then she'd come back and she'd be like, so um, let's start this meeting. My name is, and then she would say her name and they'd know like, oh, okay, we really made a mistake here. And to me, just the, the humility in that, the, the not having an ego in the room, you know, preventing you from continuing to do business. I mean, that to me, you know, it shows that there's so much in this world that's already going on. We don't need to focus on all of that. We need to focus on, you know, progress. And, and doing things together, showing each other the right way. And, and she really did that. And to me, that was like, oh, that's true leadership. And I think that women do that really well. And so that's definitely women's leadership to me. Yeah, because they thought she was a secretary and they asked her for coffee and she went to yeah. get the coffee. She did get the coffee. Yeah, that was, that was funny to me. Yeah. And <laughs> when she started the meeting and they found out that she was the one um, presenting it how did they yeah. respond yeah uh I believe she told me that it was very uncomfortable and the funny thing is Edith I've heard this story from different women who all had a high role like really good roles and then were asked to like write something down because people assumed they were like a secretary not that there's anything wrong with being a secretary but the <laughs> assumption that yeah. the only woman in the room has to be you know serving them to me that's it's funny and like I've never never encountered a woman who told me this story and then told me that they really lost it I always heard them like be very cool about it, calm about it. And then in the end, um, what I always hear is that it did become like a little bit awkward, but it never became offensive. It never became like really like painful or, you know, it was very like nurturing for them to just go along with it and just like kind of like you taught yourself a lesson pretty much. That's what what I kind of like the, the idea I get from treating it like that, you know, like the awkwardness, that's, that's a good enough lesson, I think, that they... I think that's how they felt. Yeah, and I found it really original. I wouldn't have come up with that because she, <laughs> you know, you're not upset, you're not angry. You just go yeah. along, get the coffee, and then you just start the meeting like nothing has happened. It really feels powerful. It does, it's just, right? <laughs> if nobody is touching your mood, no. you know, it stays the same. And I think that's really powerful because otherwise you know, your emotions run wild. Like, how could this happen? And I don't want this yeah. to happen and see this again. And you start getting <laughs> into those emotions. But now you're like, okay, I get to coffee and then just start. Yeah. Let's start now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Really powerful. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, yeah me too. <sighs> and you just recently had your launch for your um, female leadership program. Yeah. What made you inspire to make this new program? 
women's leadership program, it was an attempt of mine and, and you know, um, with my work to empower women because I really don't want people to feel, um, and women in this case, to feel like something is happening to them which they cannot control. And so the, the program has two real, like, uh, reasons for me, two reasons why I started them, started it. So the first one is to create awareness around the biases that women encounter because too many times I've seen women who encounter biases like maternity bias, which is that we, we tend to doubt women who are moms. You know, we, we, we tend to think that they are less competent or less ambitious. Um, that's a real bias that has been measured, one of the biggest biases against women in the workplace. And so what happens a lot is that when women encounter a bias like that is that they start doubting themselves instead of realizing this is not me. This is not the quality of my work. Um, this says nothing about how smart I am. This is a bias. And so what, about, what happens a lot is that women do think like this says something about me. And so that's something I wanted to prevent by creating awareness around all of these biases. So that's the first reason why I felt like this program is absolutely necessary to create awareness around all of these biases that we encounter in the workplace um, so that we don't start doubting ourselves because it is a fact it's it's been proven that women do suffer from lower confidence levels in the workplace so that's one but two um, there's also some skills that we women need to improve on and it's not because we are less smart or less competent that we don't have these skills. Or we didn't develop them as um, as well as men. Um, it's because of gender roles. You know, in our society, women have been allowed to work for only a few generations. There are skills that I just mentioned, like self-promoting, negotiating, networking, you know, building a higher self-confidence. These are all skills that we women typically underdevelop. And it really holds us back. And researchers have shown it. Women who self-promote, they get better jobs. They get more opportunities. When you go to conferences or attend network meetings, you have a higher chance on getting a higher salary or a promotion. You know, you feel happier in your job. A reason for developing this program is also creating awareness about not having strong skills in these areas typically, um, and also giving women um, practical guidelines and how to improve on that. So those were really wanted to give women their power back. And if you think about the skills, you were talking about negotiation. What do you think yeah. that women should improve on if, it, if, you, you know, if you think about this topic? One thing that's absolutely at the basis of all of this, um, it's the mindset set about the way you think about negotiating. So there's been this research, I think it was HBR, which where they try to find out why it is that women negotiate way less than men. And so they try to find out how we look at negotiating compared to how men look at negotiating. And according to this research, men, they would compare negotiating um, to playing a game, uh, a ball game. What, whereas women, they would compare negotiating to going to the dentist. And so, oh. I mean, if, yeah, playing a game, that's something you want to do daily. Yeah. So, yeah, if you could just change that, I would say work on your mindset. Yeah, because when you started to change your own mindset about negotiating, how did it go? In the beginning, it was just incredibly uncomfortable. Um, that's how it started. But 
you know what, doing something more times, like a lot of times, it really does change the, um, the feeling you have with it, you know, it does start to feel like more comfortable and more like a habit, you start to get confident. And if you look at one of the other skills you mentioned, you know, about yeah. the networking. Yeah. What can women improve if you say about networking? Okay, so networking is a really important one because, you know, it's to find your tribe with women. Because according to research, even going to network events just for women, um, that does improve your chances on getting a promotion or a higher salary or feeling happier in your job. So even the women networks are a great starting point for, you know, improving your network and your contacts, you know, make, getting better contacts. So, I mean, that could be step number one. It's, it's, it's a very comfortable step to be around women at women networks. And you also talked about self-promoting. And it's, of course, you know, self-promoting sometimes feel like a little bit arrogant, you know, when you're just talking about yourself and telling how great you are and wonderful. So how can we overcome that feeling of not being arrogant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel you. Um, It's really funny because in the women's leadership program, the one of the biggest problems the women I coach have is actually promoting themselves. And then the thing they say is like, I don't want to come across arrogant. I don't like to promote myself. Or I think people will dislike me. That's also what a lot of women say to me. Um, and the funny thing is, I think a lot of times we underestimate how people will actually like to hear your updates. They really like to hear how well you're doing. A lot of people do like it. I mean, I can say from my own experience, um, I can see it around me when other women are doing well, how like happy I am or how much they inspire me. And I'm like, whoa, I want to be like you. And it is that you have achieved what it is that you've accomplished so they can get more inspired by that. So you mean what you have accomplished? Do you mean that you need to tell your success? Well, yeah. Yeah, you do have to, you do, you definitely have to communicate your success. But doesn't that feel awkward to um, come up with <laughs> all your successes while you're talking to somebody you don't know or something? I mean, Edith, you did the work. You know, you did the work. You put in the hours. You overcame so many things that were really uncomfortable for you. Aren't you allowed to at least just like mention that? Should you be ashamed of that? No, you did it. So you should be able to also say that. Yeah, but still, it does not feel like everybody's clapping there kind of thing. It's like yeah. still this awkward kind of feeling listing all the successes. And, uh, and I feel yeah. like a lot of women encounter that, you know while we talk and self-promote there's just still this part like am I going to list all these successes or just should I hold back a little bit okay two things first there's you're right a lot of people are not going to be clapping and they have issues they need to work on that's not your problem that's their problem apparently they're insecure you know someone else's success is really feeling making them feel bad about themselves I'm sorry but that's really a problem you need to work on really that is a problem and you have nothing nothing to do with that and second I also want to say another thing like a lot of this has to do with imposter syndrome as well amongst women because when I talk to women who have 
Like when I start with women doing this coaching program, for example, I always go through a lot of achievements that they've, um, you know, a lot of their achievements from the past. And then I look at their LinkedIn because I also have to do like a social media analysis to find out whether they're listing their accomplishments well or not. And 99% of the time I find out that, you know, these women that I coach, they've done incredible things. They have done a lot of volunteering. They've done a lot of extra projects. You know, they, they have done amazing things that are really close to their heart, but they are not listing it. And I'm like, why is it not on your profile? Like, how would you say that the imposter syndrome plays a role then? Well, Imposter syndrome is basically the idea that, okay, you, you are achieving things, but you feel like it was by luck. It was not because you're a competent person. It's not because you're uh, talented. It's because you got lucky. And in, in someone who suffers from imposter syndrome basically feels like sooner or later, people are going to find out that actually, I am, I, I'm not deserving of all of this. So, you know, it's best for me not to say this too loud, because even though I did accomplish this now, I might not be able to reproduce this result in the future, because it was just like a coincidence. And so this plays a big role in when, when, when you're choosing not to advertise an accomplishment. And it means in a role that people or that women don't write it or don't say it. Yeah, they don't say it. That's definitely a thing. I really have to pull it out of them. Really have to pull it out of them. And they don't post about it. You know, I mean, we are living in, an, in, a, in a very digital society nowadays. You know, a lot of our professional life, it takes place online. So it is very important that we can find all of your accomplishments online. And LinkedIn is a great tool for that, for past accomplishments and future accomplishments, you know. Wow. It's a different <laughs> way of looking of the things you've done. We've been successful. It's like a whole new habit I feel yes you're saying that really well it should be a new habit and that's why my program is called a women's leadership strategy because a strategy is not something you write one day like one time and then you keep that for the rest of your life it's something you continuously improve and it's something you continuously carry out you 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 have all these action points and you have to implement them daily That's, that's what a strategy is. You know, it's also an action plan. And so that really is the point that daily you're looking at what things did I achieve this week and I need to make sure I have a schedule for posting about it. Yeah. So it's to strategize good habits, which will improve our lives and give more opportunities. A hundred percent. That's exactly what it is. You have been doing a lot with public speaking. Yeah. How did you roll into that? That's that's a really funny story. <laughs> so um, I got into it probably seven years ago, and it was kind of by accident. Um, my second master's was uh, international relations, and I did this research on um, official development aid in Suriname. That's the country where my parents are from. So I replicated this study, which has been done for more than 100 countries, where they try to find out whether... Um, donors so people who give uh, countries who give money whether they base the amount of money they give 
um, on the quality of an institution of a country, the, the quality of institutions of a country. So to give you an example, let's say country A is not doing well, it's a poor country. And um, let's say the Netherlands wants to give them money. Are they going to look at how, for example, journalists are being treated? Are they going to look at gender equality? Are they going to look at corruption in the, in, in the government before they give, I don't know, 200 million euros to this co uh, country or not. So that's the research I did. Um, and I did it for Suriname because that research didn't exist for Suriname at the time. What I did, however, is I compared um, the quality of institutions uh, for different terms of presidents. And one of them was a pretty controversial leader who um, recently lost elections and now isn't a president anymore. And so basically what happened in my research is I found out that he had lost a lot of support from donors um, because of the uh, quality of the institutions. The quality of institutions were significantly lower than with other presidents. And so when I finished my research, I made sure to finish it right before the time of elections so that it would be relevant for the media. You know, I, I, I really try to think about how can I make this as relevant as possible for media. And so they picked up on it and like headlines were pretty damaging for the previous president, uh, you know, um, showing like how much he, I think he lost like 36% of support, which was a lot for a small country like that. And so I basically kind of got banned from the country for 10 years, no, five years, he had five years left. Um, I couldn't go back. So but, you know, the research did make like TV, radio, it was in the papers. Um, and so that gave me a lot of exposure. But at the same time, it was also a little bit of a scary time for me because, um, yeah, I was just really thinking like, you know, every day, maybe I made a mistake by doing this because I was a little bit afraid of what it would mean to me. You know, so, so, and then a lot of organizations, networking organizations in the Netherlands started asking me, you know, do you want to tell us something about your research? Do you want to tell us something about your motivation in life? And so I started going to a lot of these events to speak. But at some point I did realize, like, I don't really want to um, talk about politics too much. That's not really my thing. So I tried to get away from that and started focusing more on diversity and inclusion in workplaces rather than politics. It just it was more interesting to me. So that's how it all started. Wow. That's a really different way to getting into it. <laughs> yes. And I was, you know, what was really interesting is like, you know, you were looking at the different institution and you want to, you know, make it really uh, visible what was happening. Um, when you got all this information out and you got banned from the country, you said for 10 years. How no, did five years. Five yeah. years. Yeah. How did it make you feel? Yeah. So the thing was, um, I think because I didn't have ill intentions um, and I was very young, I was 25. Uh, it was it was pretty intense because I, you know, I mean, I was living on my own, you know, just bought a house. I, you, you want to like enjoy your life as like a normal 20 something. Uh, but then that turned a little bit sour. So that was, uh, yeah, it was a pretty intense time for me, I would say. And I was wondering, you know, how did you make the transition from your, your own research to women in the workplace and in inclusion? Yeah, that's really funny because um, 
I worked in like foundations and associations where I worked on, you know, inequality in society in general. And what happened is I at some point decided, and it was after my uh, uh, political science studies, I decided I wanted to get into tech. But then once I got into tech, I saw that the imbalance in diversity was even more dramatic than, you know, I generally thought about society. And so because there you see like 10% of the working people working in, in the industry are women. And so then you get a really clear view of what it looks like when women are just incredibly marginalized. So that became a really big thing for me, you know, and I could really see what it does to a person when they're feeling very excluded in the workplace, what it does to their feelings of confidence or happiness or, you know, even their success in their work, it has such a big effect on them. And I felt like this is something, it can't just happen like this. I mean, how, if this is going to happen for generations, it's going to take forever for us to reach gender equality. So I need to do something. And what was your response to that? How, what did you want to do? So initially what I did is I started this little group of people within the company I worked at, which was like kind of, you would say, uh, the starting point of the high tech tea. So we would just come together. I would bring together all these women who are working at this company every week or like biweekly. What we would do is discuss kind of our experiences, their experiences, because I felt like I heard the same story from all of them individually. And I was really afraid that, well, I wasn't afraid it was already happening. They were doubting themselves. They weren't thinking this is something that's happening industry-wide for women not to feel included, to doubt their competencies for the workplace to make them feel like they're not good enough. They thought, all of them, they thought individually, this is something that is just happening to me because I'm not good enough. And so I wanted them to come together to talk about it so that they would understand this is not you. This is something that's happening in the industry. Um, and so we would do that, ex share experiences, but also talk about stress techniques. But we'd also just eat cake, you know, because I felt like I really have to make up a little bit for what they're missing in the workplace. They're missing friends. They're missing colleagues. They're missing like a social scene. So let me just try to create that for them. And so that started off as this like weekly by weekly meeting, but then turned into like an industry wide event where like one of the last meetings we had a thousand people watching live and, you know, really prominent speakers, inspiring uh, women, you know, great locations. So yeah, that's what it turned into. Wow. It really made a transition then. It definitely did. Yeah. I'm really lucky that it did. I'm, I'm wondering if you look at your public speaking, what topic would you like to talk about most if you look at all the things you've done? <laughs> yeah. So the thing I care about the most is uh, diversity and inclusion in the tech sector. And the reason why is because I don't think a lot of people and companies are aware enough of the dangers of not having an inclusive tech sector. Um, and for, for example, discrimination or bias to end up in um, automated systems. You know, in the Netherlands, we've had an example where, um, you know, the, the tax institution was using an AI, which falsely flagged people from immigrant backgrounds as frauds. We've had that for a while and it destroyed 10,000s of lives of families. And I mean, that can only happen with tech because once like a very destructive factor like ends up in, in an automated system, it no longer means that 
you can discriminate against 10 people per day like a normal human could do, you know, because we simply don't have the capacity to, to really wrong thousands of people per day. We don't have that. We don't have the time. We don't have the energy. We don't have the brain space to do that. But uh, an IT system, like an uh, information system, like technology can do that. And that's why I want to make companies really aware, like if that happens, your company, your service could potentially harm lots of people because discrimination, it grows exponentially once it ends up in one of your automated systems. And so that to me is like something I care about a lot. And I would love to talk about it every day, you know, give people the tools to become more inclusive, to have more diverse workforces so that they don't end up doing this. Yeah, that's really important. You said with your background that you, you know, you had your master's degree with us research, but I'm just, I'm wondering as well, how did you come into tech then? Yeah, that's really funny because I actually wanted to become a coder. After I got my second master's, I was like, what can I study now? And um, I wanted to become a coder and I went to this company where I actually did all of these testings. And so I could get into this program to become a coder. But then they actually, I, I did make it, but then they were like, do you want to join management to actually help our company grow instead of doing the program? And then I ended up doing that. I thought, you know what? I will just learn about it on the side and, and I will just make sure I become more knowledgeable in technology on the side, which I did through the work, but I never became a coder. And actually, I also, you know, like in the end, I started focusing more on DNI in the sector. So the whole like real tech stuff, it didn't become a priority anymore. So I'm actually, I don't have a tech background at this point. Okay, yeah, that's what I'm wondering because you you went to a tech company and I was like, what happens to those skills? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's funny. It's a beautiful thing how things can go, you know, in in life. So we are going to wrap up. Is there something left that you want to share with our viewers? With your viewers, yeah, definitely. If I could give everyone one advice, you know, to um, improve your life on any level, like in your personal life, even in, in your sports, but also in your work, even your romantic life, you know, all of my programs are based on a growth mindset. And I, that's something I really believe in. And, and the growth mindset is the idea that our talents and our capabilities are not fixed. We are not born with a set of talents. We can change that. We can change that by continuously learning, by giving every day our all, and by learning from our mistakes. Like no mistake says anything about who you are. It doesn't label you as a person. Thank you so much, Raisa. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you so much, uh, Edith. This was the $1 million podcast. I am Aris. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time.